I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. We are broadcasting live from West Palm Beach at the International Leadership Association Conference. Today, our guests are Ryan Satterwhite and Kathy Allen. Both of our guests co-chair the International Leadership Association Sustainability Leadership Group. So welcome, both of you. Thank you. So each of you have published books this year involving the theme of environmental leadership. Tell me more about each of these books and the need that each is attempting to address. So do you want to start, Ryan? Sure. So the, the book, Innovation in Environmental Leadership, Critical Perspectives, I want to first start off by acknowledging uh, the other two editors who aren't able to join us, uh, Ben Redekop and, and Deb Gallagher, uh, who really carried a tremendous amount of the uh, the weight of this process. Um, so I wish that they could they could be here to speak to it. Um, but uh, as an edited book, uh, I think our goal was uh, to really make a strong case that the biosphere, that the natural world is uh, and should be considered the fundamental frame for leadership. We are biological okay. beings. Um, we are intimately and um, intricately connected to the natural world around us. Um, and yet that's a reality that we often don't take into account mm -hmm. in our mm -hmm. leadership theory and practice. Um, and so this book uh, represents a, a wide range of perspectives from people all over the world who are really active in environmental leadership, uh, but are coming together around the idea of the biosphere as the maybe most critical and most fundamental frame for leadership and exploring what that means. Great. Thank you. I, I actually ran a nature preserve for a while. So hmm. this is, and I, I did not have the skill that you do to bring what I was passionate about into the work I did in the way that you have. So I'm really delighted that both of you are here and representing a perspective that just sounds so foundational to that the world we give to our children and grandchildren mm -hmm. is at least in as good of shape as the one we inherited, and we're not on that path. No, we're not. Not right now. So, Dr. Allen, tell us about your book. It starts actually with a story of responding to my clients' needs. I do a lot of work in leadership and organizational change, mm -hmm. and... About 12, 15 years ago, a lot of my clients were trying to eliminate silos in their organization. Mm -hmm. And I looked to the leadership literature, but I didn't really find management and leadership talking in the language of interdependence and mm -hmm. connection and mm -hmm. integration. And so I started searching other fields okay. and went to the sustainability field first because mm -hmm. I thought, okay, this might be a place where this kind of integrative language and ideas might find, might be found. And from there, I found a small little subset of that called biomimicry. Ah, yes. Okay. Which is the uh, looking to nature as a model, mentor, and measure. But biomimicry had been doing a lot in design of houses you know, the design of windmills, you know, a lot of engineering, biological intersection, but they really hadn't done much with bringing those ideas into human organizations. And my work is primarily organizational leadership. So what I started doing was uh, experimenting with how the way nature is designed 
could be applied to human organizations and human systems. And so my book is really kind of cultivating the lessons of design principles found in nature, like waste is never wasted. It rewards cooperation. It banks on diversity. It depends on self-organization. It runs on sunlight. Some of those frames. Mm -hmm. And talk about how we could apply that and how it would change the way we approach leadership. And eventually, what happens in nature as their ecological systems evolve into mature forests or prairies or coral reefs is that these systems become more diverse, more interdependent. They maintain the dynamicness and innovation, and they become more generous because they start exchanging nutrients across the mm -hmm. And so if you're looking for resilience, you also want to look for diversity, which, of course, we know in our financial systems that that's true, but mm -hmm. we don't often apply it to our human organizations. And my thought is, is that if people could live and experience a living system and being led in a living system kind of way, that it would maybe make the relationship to the earth less scary and more inviting mm -hmm. and that it would fundamentally change our worldview and the way we connect with the earth. Wow, that's a big goal. Yes. <laughs> yes. We're looking for a company out there. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody who's listening to this would like to uh, join this idea. So you haven't we'll tackled the world's smallest problems. <laughs> <laughs> so what can environment, and I think you touched on this, what can environmental leadership perspective add to the broader leadership dialogue? Well, I think I'll, I'll start here. The reason why we titled the subtitle for Innovation and Environmental Leadership Critical Perspectives was we really wanted to strongly bring out that critical dialogue from from critical theory um, explicitly, which is uh, an effort to to seek emancipatory practices. And so, how do we recognize the limitations of of the narratives that we all are drawing from, or the frames of reference, the mental models that we're using, um, mm -hmm. and how do we see those as limiting as well as helpful? So, can you give an example? Because I don't know that yeah. some of our listeners will know exactly what you're pointing to. Sure. Um, so, you know, the, I, I think it's fair to probably say that still to this day, the most common, let's say, uh, understanding of effective leadership might be kind of a traditional, charismatic, mm -hmm. heroic mm -hmm. model. It's what we're used to seeing in the media. It's what we're used to even looking for actively ourselves in different spheres of life. And so uh, a critical perspective would be one that asks... It's not starting from assumption that that's wrong, but it's just asking questions about how does that limit what we pay attention to? How does that limit our behavior in organizations? How does that limit the way we learn about leadership and teach about leadership? And so I think that as as Kathy alluded to earlier, there's a tremendous amount of, of opportunity to learn from lessons in nature. Mm -hmm. um, and that can easily, um, or sometimes not so easily, but still usefully tran be translated into mm -hmm. kind of a leadership practice mm -hmm. context. Perfect. Yeah, our, at least my whole body of work and what this show is focused on is helping leaders update how they think and behave. Mm -hmm. So part of yep. it, if I, if I look at 
a very traditional leader as what I think leadership of the future looks mm -hmm. like. So the contrary to our Leadership 2050 book, mm -hmm. if I'm looking at traditional, so NCIS and Gibbs, if that's what good looks like, then how do we help people shift to something that looks somewhat different than that? Yep. And how does that somewhat different leader consider lessons from the environment and the environment as one of the stakeholders? Yes. Yeah. And I okay. think just as importantly, um, and several of our chapter authors make this case, that leadership education and development should be as much about, uh, I think Kathy actually talks about this in her book as well, that it should be just as much about what we need to unlearn as what we're learning in the process. That's really important. So what's an example of something you wish people would unlearn? Well, I think that there's a, right now a, a vast gulf between the way that leadership is portrayed in you know, popular culture, the way that most of us encounter it in day-to-day -day life, okay. and the way that some uh, leadership scholars and practitioners and theorists are trying to envision it. Okay. And so I think that that comes back to this need to unlearn some things because by the time we actually start studying leadership that's typically not you know in elementary school for the most part and so by the time you actually encounter it as a subject matter you have all of this accumulated messaging around what leadership is in our culture and what it's not and for those who haven't studied in university i think the average age people get their first leadership class is 40. yeah that sounds right yeah. And, uh, so how much life experience, <laughs> how much messaging much have you received? have they yeah. done? Very <laughs> seriously, think about the early stuff. I'll say me, you may not have done any stupid stuff. Oh, I did a pardon. vast amount of things I wish I could undo. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So anything to add to that, and then we're going to go to break. I think that one of the beautiful things that uh, nature and environmental frameworks can do for us as leaders and organizations is that to is that nature has 3.8 billion years of creating conditions conducive to the life of future generations okay and if that's nature's purpose then what would that look like if we applied that organizationally to our leadership what would it look like for us to see the soul of leadership not in the level of profit that your organization mm -hmm. earns, but actually in the legacy we leave to our communities, our business, the earth. So we kind of begin to build a more expanded time horizon mm -hmm. to measure the way we do our work. But we're living in a dynamic, interdependent, complex series of problems right now, challenges, you could say. Mm -hmm. And most of our frameworks are much more bounded, objective, kind of views of our organization. And when we have an object or an objectification to our organization and our leadership frame, what we do is we assume control is possible. <laughs> we assume that we don't need to build relationships between our organization and the environment and other stakeholders. We assume that we don't need to create conditions conducive to the life of our employees and our supply line and our customers and the earth and our communities and other stakeholders in our world. So there's lots of lessons of what it would look like to lead a living system instead of a system that we've objectified. 
where we unleash talent instead of control it, where we assume change is already happening and all we have to do is transform the energy that's already there. Aligned with the bigger system, not aligned with the bigger system. company alone. Yes. So I think there's a lot to unlearn, and one mm-hmm. of them is this kind of objectification of people. Because as soon as you objectify your organization, the employees in it believe that somebody else owns the organization and it's not them, so they don't have to show up to solve the problem. Or if it's objectified <laughs> from the top down, then they think they own the organization and they can tell the organization what to do because they've got all the control. It's not very helpful when you need a lot of talent and a lot of knowledge and experience and insight at the table to make your decisions. And that goes beyond environmental. That's a statement about our About innovation and resilience as an organization, your adaptive capacity. So how do we change our mindset about leadership? So I think... So as Ryan was saying earlier, so much of how we think about leadership is kind of part of a larger overculture that we've had that's mm-hmm. anchored in seeing organizations as some kind of machine or object. Yeah. Yeah. And Newtonian uh, physics kind Newtonian of Newtonian physics, when in fact our lived reality is that we've always had life in organizations. We've just ignored that it's there. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, if we were borrowing and learning from the larger environment as a framework, a biosphere, so to speak, mm-hmm. or nature as a framework, then we would ask questions like, how do we create stronger connections and help people recognize that they're not separate, siloed individuals, but are actually connected and are in an interdependent system? Mm-hmm. And that would require us to focus on relationships, focus on connection, focus on connection of ideas, of time, of space between our organizations and our communities, Mm -hmm. uh, how decisions impact over time, the earth and vice versa. And we would have to let go of this, you know, illusion that we can control our our world Mm -hmm. and that we have dominance over it as a point of privilege of being human Mm -hmm. and that we would also need to probably let go of our sense of separation. You know, those are easy words to say, but (laughs) um, as someone who does executive coaching, if my entire way of making sense of my contribution as a leader is that I'm in charge, that I know what I'm doing, that's what people pay me for, to say how I conceive this is completely wrong, then who am I? Really becomes the fundamental question. And what value do I bring? Because I don't do that new stuff. I do that old stuff really well. I have the illusion of separate and I'm in control of you and I'm good at telling you what to do and measuring it and creating accountabilities and structured processes. This seems like it would terrify people who are really good at functioning in the existing system. It could. And I think that a lot of the people I do executive coaching with are people who are trying to push the envelope. Okay. Because they tend to be highly effective managers and leaders in traditional Mm -hmm. senses. Mm -hmm. And at some point in their journey, they've realized that they can't do it by themselves anymore. Okay. 
So they are figuring out how can they get more company at the organizational mm-hmm. leadership table mm-hmm. to help move the interests of the whole organization instead of just part of the organization forward. And so it's really out of that need that mm-hmm. they start searching. And so okay. maybe my question to your listeners would be, where are you in that journey? Are you still learning how to be a really great traditional leader? Or are you beginning to realize and get frustrated with the limits of that mm-hmm. frame? And if you're starting to get frustrated because no matter how good you are, you still can't do it as well as you want it to be, mm-hmm. then you're probably getting ready to have these kinds of deeper questions mm-hmm. show up in your leadership practice. And this maps to developmental psychology as well. Yes. That there's a jump to post-conventional, and there's a lot of research on that that we won't talk about now. But but it does seem that there's a very clear delineation where this comes online. And I can felt sense. Yeah. And I think that in that certain uh, sectors of our economy are more prone. So if you're in a sector that has a lot of external disruptions happening Mm -hmm. in your business, then you're going to be more likely to start trying to figure out how to respond to these more complex issues. Okay. So that, and then once you start entering into the world of complex problems, not Mm -hmm. complicated problems, but complex problems. And adaptive. Mm -hmm. Then you need high high levels of adaptive innovation Mm -hmm to respond quickly to the dis- major disruptions in your sector. So and what so I find in my leadership practice, my coaching practice, is that it, those people also are the ones that find me to start exploring these ideas. So let's define adaptive, because again, our listeners may not know that term exactly as you're using it. So to you, what is an adaptive problem? Well, it's um, coming from nature. Nature has kind of a what they would call an adaptive cycle that it's been using for billions of years. Mm-hmm. And the adaptive cycle looks a little bit like an um, infinity loop on its side. And so the upper left-hand quadrant is explore. Mm-hmm. The upper lower left-hand is of the, of the circle is launch. Mm-hmm. Then you go up to the upper right, that's sustain, and then there's a release which is the lower right. So the Mm -hmm. front loop, which is launch and sustain, doesn't stop there. There, at some point, you become too rigid or Mm -hmm. your forms no longer fit the purpose that you're Mm -hmm. trying to do, so you have to adapt. And that means you're releasing a background assumption, a business model, a way of doing something, Mm -hmm. a program that you've invested time and effort in, to that release allows you to reclaim the energy and resources okay. that have been holding the program in place or the form mm-hmm. in place and then explore to the next round. So this simple explore, launch, sustain, release and this is a constant loop that you find in nature. And that's one of the reasons why life still exists on this planet 3.8 billion years later is because this is natural, but it's not natural in human organizations. We really have to work hard to do this because we fall in love with our forms, and we don't know the linear structure. And yeah, yeah, this is all of all of the Ryan stuff that you was talking about earlier. It's about how our mental models and other things hold us in this sustaining place that no longer always is functional. 
So one thing I want to point out, and then we'll shift to what Ryan's doing, is that not only does the system need to change, I as the leader need to change. Absolutely. So, and often I think leaders are under the belief that it's my job to control that or them, not also change me, them, and that. And when I add me into the equation, it's a very different equation. And the thing is, is that when our world was more stable, our external environment was more stable, the idea that a leader knew everything mm -hmm. and could control and direct everything was, it was effective. Mm -hmm. It worked. At least it wasn't delusional. But it doesn't work in the world that we're currently living in. We're, we're creating new challenges and problems every single day, and we're trying to solve it with old mindsets. Mm -hmm. Not very helpful. Nature can teach us a whole lot about more effective mindsets. Brilliant. Thank you. And so, Ryan, how does your work relate and is also different than Kathy? Well, that's one of the reasons why um, I enjoy connecting with Kathy so much is because we, I think, approach our respective work from a very similar place, but we, the work we do is different. Um, mm -hmm. And so while Kathy's working with, you know, high achieving executives who have kind of reached this stopping point and are actively <laughs> seeking for what helped me through this difficult period, my work with college students is quite different. And I think your observation around this being connected to developmental psychology is really important um, because, you know, Kathy's clients may, may or may not, but may have had that life experience of being able to kind of come to some of those transition points developmentally. Um, Many of my students haven't, and so it's, it's been a, a, a constant evolution of innovation, trial and error to figure out what's going to connect for them. Um, mm -hmm. On the one hand, I think that I have some advantage in the population that I work with because they haven't had decades and decades of messaging <laughs> and, and <Yeah>. practice <laughs> built up, right? right. And so they're, they're a little less maybe calcified. And on the other hand, they just don't have uh, the life experience to draw upon to yet to do some of the critical reflection that's needed um, through the process. And so in our work with students, both inside and outside of the classroom, mm -hmm. uh, we've, we've really uh, had to experiment actively in terms of what are the experiences, what are the settings, what are the conversations that are going to really connect with this population as we talk about sustainability mm -hmm. and leadership. I think that uh, the younger generations in particular this is a more natural way of seeing the world mm -hmm. and interacting with the world. I think social media and the idea of networks and systems uh, have really kind of primed some for thinking in this way, but that's uh, but they still don't have it all figured out. I mean, none of us mm -hmm. do, right? right? So I think there's a natural tendency there that we can build upon. But the, the, the hurdle that I face, I guess, the, the privilege that I have is helping them to, to make some of the kind of contextual and connections uh, mm -hmm. between different concepts that they may not have been exposed to yet. It seems like it, it would be really fun to just explore the continuum, which is what you guys get to do. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I think there's more work out there if someone's looking for a dissertation topic. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and if you do your job brilliantly, your job, or Ryan, Kathy's job changes. Yeah. <laughs> In a wonderful That's way. What, <laughs> so why do you think that leadership literature has been slow to take up the ecological perspective? I'm thinking when I first started doing the work in sustainability decades ago, 
that just there was a little bit out there, but not much. I think that's that's the important starting place is that uh, it's not that it hasn't been present, but it has been slow to be engaged with and adopted mm-hmm. um, in a big way. So there, you know, Kathy herself um, has been kind of writing and thinking about this for uh, a while now. Um, folks like Meg Wheatley. Yeah, um, my favorite author. Yeah, um, Peter Senge. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, there have been a number of, of people calling attention to this for some time. I think that we're just now beginning to approach a bit of a critical mass in the literature and in the number of sources that people can be exposed to that introduces mm-hmm. this this concept. I think also that we have framed the um, assumption in an odd way. Mm. So okay. when I first got into the field, I used to think, how can I keep up with the literature? Mm-hmm. But the more experience I had, I realized the literature wasn't keeping up with me. Mm. Interesting. So what happens uh, when you are actively applying is that that's really where the innovation is going. And the mm-hmm. time frame to get an idea researched, written, and published is at least, if you're lucky, a three-year time lag. If you're lucky. And usually more of like five to 10 years. So mm-hmm. the literature actually is behind the practice. Mm-hmm. But the practitioners don't have time to write. So they're inventing, adapting, changing mm-hmm. the whole field of leadership mm-hmm. and its connection to sustainability in a way that the literature is not able to keep up with because of the nature of publication. So we only get to see it when with that three to five five-year time delay. You know, I'm delighted that you're doing the interviews because we can do these more frequently. Mm-hmm. And especially because your work is so research-focused, we can talk about it before the publication cycle is complete. At yes. least next time. I realize you yes. both have new books sitting here. <laughs> but, but I think that's critical because it's mm-hmm. these vehicles that actually help people name and mm-hmm. understand what their life is about. Mm-hmm. They're practicing, they're innovating, they're accelerating their innovation, but they often don't have words or concepts to attach to them. That's really what writing does for people. It mm-hmm. gives them frameworks and frameworks. Yeah. And so these vehicles, like with podcasts, can mm-hmm. be an extraordinary service to the field because it gives this much more immediate framing and meaning-making in terms of the people's leadership. So let's talk now about why you're so passionate about sustainability and how you connect with nature. Well, for me, sustainability was was the first love. Leadership came mm-hmm. second. Okay. Um, I was exposed to it second. Uh, but what's so, your dissertation in? Well, you know, for it, it really starts uh, much earlier than that for me. Okay. Uh, and I credit a tremendous amount to my environment and my family, my parents, um, to really expose me to this. So I grew up in Portland, Oregon, oh. um, which in general within the U.S. is kind of, I think, seen as a as a fairly environmentally conscious city. <laughs> and so everything from uh, reduce, reuse, recycle, you know, family kind of waste practices, but more significantly than that was just exposure to nature. So even though I grew up okay. in kind of suburban environment, we were constantly taking camping trips and hiking trips and all of that kind of thing that that just was absolutely foundational for how I connected to nature um, and saw myself as a contributing member of this larger system. Um, and so for me, that, that really came first. I wasn't kind of uh, exposed to leadership 
development or research or theory until college, um, my undergraduate degree. And it's been a natural fit for me ever since, because I don't know that I could talk about leadership without this sustainability mm -hmm. lens. Oh, interesting. So you've talked about what exposed you to it. How did you get passionate about it? Because you invest a great deal of your waking hours focusing on this. Well, I, I think that once I saw uh, the gap that I perceived to exist in leadership theory and practice and okay. literature, it became something I had to I had to be doing. It became more mm -hmm. of a calling. Mm -hmm. And so uh, while I certainly don't pretend that I'm the only one that sees this, I think that I have a voice that can help bring greater attention um, and greater uh, effort and energy around leadership for, for sustainability. And so I see that as, as a responsibility. I am a parent of two young kids. That certainly shapes my experience mm -hmm. and, and my goals and motivations as well. I am concerned deeply about what we are collectively doing, including the decisions that I make uh, to our planet and to the life that we share it with. And I recognize that I'm only here for so long. And this is what the, I can't think of a better purpose than to spend my time helping to hopefully reshape our relationship with nature. And for me, that comes through leadership for sustainability. Beautiful. To reshape our relationship with nature. Thank you. Kathy. Uh, like Ryan, uh, I have wonderful memories and experiences in nature as a kid. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think that's the only way people get into this passion, mm -hmm. but for me, it was a sense of um, feeling the energy and the beauty around me and how powerful that is as a, you know, a way, a context that you can anchor yourself in. But then I think my, the sustainability in, and leadership connection actually started with my belief that if you want to change or transform our systems and our organizations or ourselves, that we wanted to do it in a way that held as opposed to an experiment that just doesn't hold. Mm -hmm. And so, so much of my work in change and leadership is really about making sure people's fingerprints are all over it and that they own the solution to it. And if you then add sustainability into it, you can have a sustainable program organizationally, but people don't have their fingerprints all over it. It doesn't hold. Mm -hmm. And so the sustainability had kind of a double meaning for me. One is sustainability in relationship to your impact in the world around you and sustainability in the sense of how do you lead and create change in your organization in a way that holds without additional energy attached to it. So you're not wasting resources holding change in place that as soon as those resources are redirected will disappear. You know, it's an interesting question. I uh, One of my colleagues talks about having transformed several organizations and when he leaves his question is do they sustain mm -hmm. right the organization may sustain but then they're acquired by someone else or they're run by someone else who wants to put their fingerprint on it and is the the gain that was made wiped out right so i think 
So for me, I measure my value and my worth as a consultant and an OD practitioner based on whether things hold. Mm -hmm. And you can't hold that by one person. Yeah. Or yeah. 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 The other framework that I've been using, I'm involved with this resi building resilient community mm -hmm. kind of think tank in the Twin Cities. And, you know, we're moving, we think sustainability actually is the middle bar. It's like a zero bar. Okay. As opposed to, you know, extraction minus 50, mm -hmm. minus 75. Mm -hmm. So what's the restorative and regenerative capacity ah, of a system? And I think that's where, you know, your title of your podcast series about resilience and thriving mm -hmm. organizations, mm -hmm. they have this capacity for regeneration yeah. and restoration that mm -hmm. goes beyond sustainability as the bar. So I think at some point, we have to start shifting our expectations and our language. Just like in old immature forest ecologies, mm -hmm. they start contributing back to the commons, the soil. Mm -hmm. If the soil is the metaphor for the commons, instead okay. of extracting from the soil. Yeah. So young, you extract. Right. And Mid-orme, you, you still extract more than, but you store more things okay. in the root structure. But then as you evolve, become more diverse, you become more resilient, just like our financial portfolios. But you also have a higher capacity to regenerate after disaster. And and we have a lot of that going around. So, you know, so how do you build your organizations and lead your organizations so you're truly regenerative and restorative to the balance between nature and organization and leadership? Those, I think, become the more interesting questions going forward. And, and to, to jump on that a little bit, the, I think one of the challenges that I have wrestled with continuously is, is how do I prepare students whom not all are early career, um, but most are, to go into an organization at an entry-level position mm -hmm. and help develop that capacity and deliver that message if it's not an already dominant part of the culture there. And that's an extraordinarily difficult thing to ask anyone to do. I don't know the success rate of that, but that's the conversations we try and have. Well, you interact with lots of students. Mm -hmm. So while Kathy's leverage is fewer people, more power, your leverage is more people, but less power. Mm -hmm. And if those come together, we'll see quicker change than either one or the other one. Yeah. yeah. But, but nature would have an interesting lesson to what Ryan just shared. So nature... Mm -hmm depends on self-organization and it self-assembles from the molecular level up. And as a result, it means what would happen to our leadership frame if we began to see leadership coming from the bottom versus only from the top or mm -hmm. coming from anywhere. And if we are framing things from a nature's lesson, mm -hmm. this, this bubbling up mm -hmm. tends to be really where the innovative processes happen, mm -hmm. where the system is most adaptive. Okay, and so we could say, given that as a framework, that what the work that Ryan is doing with college-age students will have an impact on the world in a much larger proportion than the numbers that he reaches, because those people will go on to mm -hmm. lead teams, divisions, organizations, mm -hmm. communities, mm -hmm. and they will make a difference. And so it starts with helping them think in a different way about what leadership is mm -hmm. and what is our responsibility to the earth and 
our long-term choices. You know, something you said earlier just keeps coming back to me. In Native American studies, we talk about seven generations. Mm -hmm. So thriving, Mm -hmm. back to your point, is meeting quarterly numbers. If profit is the fuel that drives us forward, we need that. So I'm not saying we don't. And if I am leaving a legacy of a healthy organization and a healthy planet, and so often we think of us and profit as the money only, not not the planetary impact we have that's now going to have to be cleaned up by tax dollars and super funds and, and other. I think that's one of the biggest challenges. I had a, a journal article a couple of years ago around deep time in leadership studies. And mm-hmm. So kind of calling for an effort to help expose us all to, mm-hmm. to integrate into leadership education and development, um, the ability to connect to, think in, and make decisions on longer timescales than we're accustomed to. Mm-hmm. I think that can people can encounter that from any number of places. It can start in an organizational context. It can start at an individual level as we begin to see ourselves as part of histories and contexts mm-hmm. and communities. And so there's a lot of different ways for people to connect with that idea, but I think it's one that we've neglected for too long. You know, as I look at people being so distraught right now, if we step back and look at the trajectory of time, Mm -hmm. we're at a point, on many measures, we are as more successful than ever imagined by our forefathers. Yes, and and that doesn't eliminate the concerns that we have right now and the very real realities that Mm -hmm. that some of us are living through. But uh, I think it does provide a greater context for the work that we're engaged in. So let's shift gears for one second, and then Kathy will come back and, and do a closing comment. Um, the ILA group mm-hmm. that you co-host, mm-hmm. just give us a minute on what is it for people who don't know anything about the International Leadership Association and that we even have groups, what does this group accomplish and why do they care? So ILA uh, has a number of kind of substructures to it mm-hmm. that members can can become participants in and a number of us saw a need to have a group that would focus on leadership and sustainability okay. a couple of years ago. So that was formally created in 2013. And because it's so young, we're really kind of still building out mm-hmm. its identity and culture okay. and community. To date, we know that there are over 600 ILA members who have, uh, through their membership registration process, expressed explicit interest in this area, okay. which is a really encouraging number. But Kathy and I have some plans about how to harness that interest mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. energy. Um, we're going to be building out uh, a larger, uh, I guess, executive team to mm-hmm. have more voices at the planning table okay. um, to enable more activities to be coming from this group. And one of our biggest areas is how we expand the ways in which we are interconnected to mm-hmm. the other groups mm-hmm. within ILA. And I think associations, volunteer associations, have an immense power to transform the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, sustainability, both the literature and the practice, one of the reasons why it keeps running under the radar is that there is no single leader that is the leader of the world on sustainability. But there are 3,000 or more of these kind of association groups mm-hmm. that are influencing and are making change locally and regionally. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that that really is the power of a movement. The way this okay. has been structured is it's much more locally driven or mm-hmm. contextually driven. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to build a stronger contextually driven focus within this professional association that people around can these ideas who will then go back and influence in their own sphere mm-hmm. and that we could create a space where they could feel supported, that we can share knowledge and insight and practice mm-hmm. with each other uh, that makes our work even more effective in our, our context, where whatever that might be. That's a brilliant note to wrap up on. Thank you so much. And for our listeners, I'm going to say the name of your books again, or will you? Sure. Uh, so the book uh, that I'm representing on behalf of many others is The Innovation in Environmental Leadership, Critical Perspectives. And my book is called Leading from the Roots, Nature-Inspired Leadership Lessons for Today's World. And if people want to reach out to me, you can do it um, on my website, www.leadingfromtheroots.com. Perfect. Thank you both so much for sharing your wisdom. And for our listeners, I really hope you've heard something today or a lot of things that will help you update your thinking about leadership and something that you may put in practice this week, next week, in the near future. So thank you for joining us, and we hope that you join us again next week. This episode is brought to you by the Innovative Leadership Institute, working with companies that recognize the need to upskill their leaders and transform their organizations. What worked yesterday won't work today, and what works today won't work tomorrow. We help executive teams prepare for accelerated uncertainty by creating the foresight needed to stay competitive, elevating leaders to succeed, and transforming organizations to become future-ready. If you'd like to discuss how we can help prepare your organization for tomorrow, please visit InnovativeLeadership.com and click Contact Us.